The last few months have seen a swift and significant recalibration in markets. Inflation looks to be higher and stickier than previously assumed, and the Fed has shifted to a more hawkish stance, now penciling upwards of seven hikes in 2022 and eyeing a faster pace of balance sheet reduction than in the past. For investors, questions abound on how to best allocate investments in this environment. Higher interest rates pose problems for mega-cap equities, but will the US still benefit relative to international economies with greater sensitivity to the Russian invasion of Ukraine? Now that rates are rising, should investors stay short duration or is fixed income beginning to look attractive? And as recent geopolitical events have reminded us, there's always the potential for unknown shocks and the risk of US recession in the coming two years has risen. Today, having a conversation on active management and portfolio positioning is even more important. So to help provide some insight on this, I've invited my colleague Phil Camparelli, an asset allocation strategist and portfolio manager for global asset allocation strategy at JP Morgan Asset Management. So Phil, welcome to Insights Now. Thanks for having me, Dr. Kelly. So a lot's happened uh, so far this year in a relatively short amount of time. So let's talk about your view of the world. What is your outlook right now on U.S. growth and inflation? Yeah, David, if there's one thing about this cycle that has been a trademark from post-pandemic, it's just been the speed of the cycle. Cycle is moving at breakneck speed. And if you think about where we came into the year versus where we are now, David, a lot has changed. Fed was thinking maybe they go three times (laughs) in December. And now they just told us they're going to go seven times and the market is pricing in just under nine. David, 10-year rates have jumped 100 basis points this year alone. As you know, we have an 8% CPI forecast. Um, As as a manager of a a balance-type multi-asset fund, it's very, very uh, anxious for investors when both the 60 and the 40 are both down. David, the ag has put put up a negative 6% number in the first quarter, which is the worst that the ag has done in 30 years. At one point, oil was up almost 100%. And oh, yeah, there's a war in Europe at the same time. So where does this bring us with all of this stuff happening? I think year-over-year growth at the end of this year uh, in the U.S. stays positive. I think we're at, we're at about 3% in, in growth in the U.S. Uh, Europe between 2 and 3%, depending, you know, really how the war, war plays out this year, but still positive there. But most importantly, with the question that is on everyone's mind, uh, we're, we have an expectation that inflation is going to settle, you know, about 4% by the end of this year, which, as you know, is still historically high based on the Fed's target of 2%, but in a much, much different place than where we started the year. And I, and I think one of the things that gives us some, some confidence in that view is that longer-term inflation expectations, David, even though that, that, that what we're seeing now is very, very high, um, five-year inflation five years out is about two and a half right now. So nothing really to see on the long-term expectation. And most investors, David, believe that inflation at these levels are going to be more of a 2022 thing and not stretch into 2023 and beyond. But still, the uh, the Federal Reserve is obviously taking it pretty seriously now, and they've made a mm-hmm. notable shift towards hawkishness, um, as reiterated in the latest FOMC minutes. So as you read those minutes, you think about what else they're saying. What's your view right now on how fast they increase the short-term interest rates and also how fast do they reduce their balance sheet? 
Yeah, David, the minutes this year have, have been as impactful as the actual meetings. Uh, if you remember back in January, the minutes caused the markets to to move, and, and this week was, was no exception. Uh, what I've been sharing with investors, and it sounds a little hyperbole, but what I've been sharing with investors is we've never seen, you've never seen it, I've never seen it, even people that have been in the markets for a long time has never seen anything like this from the Federal Reserve. And what do I mean by that? We all got used to a very slow tightening cycle in the last cycle. Even before that, David, even though they were moving every meeting, there was no balance sheet involved. Now, what are they saying? They're saying, get ready for some 50 basis point hikes. Okay. Uh, market is pricing that in. They probably would have gone 50 already if it wasn't for the Russia-Ukraine crisis. And they mentioned that yesterday. But I think the big, the big, big difference is the speed of their balance sheet reduction. And we found out yesterday that they're going to be moving by about $95 billion a month as we get towards the summer. Um, we think base case, David, they go for the next kind of three years. And, and again, I say that in a vacuum because anything can happen in three years. Uh, but they take their balance sheet down by a little over a trillion a year. So if it's at $8 trillion now in three years, um, that, that balance sheet gets to about uh, $5 trillion. But again, that's subject to what is going on in the economy. I think one of the biggest things that we're focused on and what they're focused on, they want to get to neutral as soon as possible. So what does neutral mean? It means a federal funds rate somewhere between two and a half and three percent, we think. And we think they can kind of get there in the first quarter of, of 2023. And think about how different that was from the last cycle when it took them forever to get to neutral. And now they're getting there so much quicker. Why? Because of the uncomfortable um, kind of level of near-term uh, inflation that we see priced into markets. But as you're pointing out, inflation will probably come down a, a bit over the course of, uh, of the rest of this year and going into next year. Mm -hmm. And certainly, uh, you and I agree that economic growth momentum will probably come down a little bit relative to what we've seen over the past year. Um, so the economy is going to be, you know, slowing down a bit. Um, and given that, as the Federal Reserve tightens, people are, are beginning to worry more about recession. So do you think the Fed is in danger of being too aggressive here and might actually push the US into recession? And let's, let's be a little quantitative here. What do you think the probability is of a recession starting mm -hmm. either this year or next year? Yeah, and this is, David, where the neutral rate and defining the neutral rate is really important. We define the neutral rate as the rate where they're neither accommodative nor restrictive. Okay, And that's what we're thinking is somewhere between 25 and 3%. So if they hurry up and get there, right, then you're just getting to a place that you're not accommodative anymore, but not necessarily restrictive. So what have we done? We have certainly increase the probabilities of the tails. The one tail that we went through is that inflationary tail that we talked about in the last couple of questions. The tail you're asking about is what we would define as the left tail. That's the recession. And I, I, I want to make it very clear that we are stopping short of saying that we're going to go into recession over the next 12 months. Now, that doesn't mean the probability is zero. We've raised the probability of that. If the probability of a recession in any given year is 15%, we're probably at about 25% right now. Okay, so it has it has gone up based on just an extraordinary amount of tightening and financial conditions tightening that we would expect. But we are stopping short of recession. Why? Um, the corporate and consumer balance sheets, 
rock solid, David. What do you think all of that stimulus did, especially the corporate balance sheet? It created so much cash uh, there that they are in a very, very good position. One of my favorite slides in the Guide to the Markets shows how the consumer has benefited not just from the asset price inflation or the wealth effect on the asset side of his or her balance sheet, but on the liability side of his or her balance sheet, low rates and debt payments as a percentage of disposable income are plumbing new lows. I mean, this is a very, very strong story from the consumer. David, do you realize that this morning's initial jobless claims were the lowest number since 1968? So the labor market is also very, very strong. Uh, real yields, which I like to point to. So real yields are the difference between where the nominal yield is on CNBC, right? So if the 10-year treasury is trading at 2.6, if you subtract 10-year inflation from that, real yields are still negative. And that's my antidote to the signal that the curve is telling you, where if two tens inver inverts, all of a sudden we're going into recession. So I, 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 that's one of my favorite pushbacks. Okay, two's tens nominal may have inverted last week, but two's tens real is still steep and 10-year real rates are still negative, which is a very, very accommodative place for growth, for cyclicality. And then the last piece I would, I would add to this, David, is just the credit markets. Um, there's no canary in the coal mine when it comes to the credit markets and the way high yield is trading. High yield is outperforming the ag this year by about 2%. Okay, so I, I think if some of those things were to change or funding funding markets, maybe we would we would change our opinion. But putting the whole picture together, we're stopping short of 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 pricing in recession as our as our base case here. And that's not just for the US, David, but somewhat controversially also for global growth. We're avoiding that 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 um uh that temptation of falling into of calling for a recession over the next year. So Okay, let's well, let's let's turn to that. Let's talk about uh, asset allocation in this environment. I mean, I think your uh, viewpoint on where the economy is going is pretty clear. Um, but let's talk about what that means for investing. So, so when you think about investing, you start with um, a, um, I guess, a normal portfolio. So, what what do you think yep. a normal portfolio means? Yeah, David, as an asset allocator, we wake up every day. And we try to beat the 60-40, okay? That's what we would consider our benchmark. Um, I, I run a, a more global-oriented 60-40, so I define a normal portfolio as 60% in the all-country world index, 40% in the global aggregate. So those are global kind of core bonds. And the normal portfolio starts, you know, uh, the 60 is, is dominated by the U.S., about 37% in the U.S. is the starting point. About 17% of the portfolio outside of the U.S. in developed markets. We define that as, as EFA, right? So that's developed non-U.S. And about 6% is the normal starting point in emerging markets. So that's how we would define the normal starting point on the equity side. And as I mentioned, the global aggregate includes not just U.S. core bonds, but also core bonds uh, globally. Okay, so let's focus on the equity side first. Mm -hmm. So, sixty forty, but as as a normal portfolio. But uh, are you now actually overweight equities, and then how are you positioned within equities? Yeah, so um, we're less overweight than we were coming into the year. So I would say that that is a function of the dueling tail risks that I alluded to in my previous answers. One being kind of financial conditions, tightening inflation, monetary policy. That's the one tail risk. And then the other tail risk being the impact 
that the Russia-Ukraine war is having on global growth, on commodity prices, on the global consumer, okay? So we're less overweight than where we were coming into the year, but we are still overweight. And we're overweight to the tune of about 3%. So our portfolio has about 63% in equities versus 60% in equities. As a, as a frame of reference, in late December, we had 70% of the fund in equity. So that's now down to 63. And our highest confidence view right now is, is the United States. So even though we run a globally oriented portfolio, we have um, about 41% of our fund in the US, which compares to 37 in the index. So that's a 4% overweight to the US. And that's for a lot of the reasons that I went through in the prior answers, right? Around the fundamental story of the consumer and corporate balance sheet, the labor market, and the Fed being able to, to kind of cool the, the inflation impulse. We're slightly underweight EFA or developed non-US, but remember, developed non-US is not just Europe. We kind of like Canada here. Canada is a great diversified diversifying market, but we are underweight Europe in this environment. And that's different from where we were in February, pre-invasion, when global diversification was working, right? So we now have pivoted back to the US, especially in terms of our confidence. And then the last piece of equities, David, is emerging markets. And you know, we have 6% of our fund in EM. That's about a neutral weighting. And I'd say that um, EM has two things going two things going on, one working for it and one working against it. What's working for EM is the fact that much of the pain that you're seeing in U.S. markets earlier this year, European markets, was felt in EM last year. Emerging markets were a big underperformer last year. Okay, So valuation is a pro. You have to look at EM from a valuation perspective. However, with kind of what seems like an endless kind of fight against COVID-19 in, in, in Asia and in China, uh, it's just not time for us yet to see that spark that we would need to, to, to go to an overweight in emerging markets. But again, the valuation is compelling, which is why we have a neutral, a neutral allocation there. So to sum all that up, overweight to equities, focusing on the U.S., and so, you know, as as a global asset manager, you say that you are neutral emerging markets. But actually, how does that neutral weighting compare to the average American investor? Yeah, David, when I say we're six percent and that's a neutral, that's six percent more than the average investor. Um, that tends not to have emerging markets in their in their portfolio, and they treat it as an out of benchmark allocation. Right. So uh, that is not the way we think about emerging markets. We think emerging markets make sense for a lot of reasons to include in a strategic asset allocation over time. But our view is you better be ready, willing and able to tactically trade that asset class because of the inherent volatility that that portfolio has. It's been a minefield for global allocators over the last decade. 2017, best performing asset class. 2018, worst performing asset class. Last year, you know, underperformed developed markets by, by a lot. So um, again, it belongs in our strategic asset allocation. We want to have it in the portfolio, but we also want to be um, able to trade that tactically in and out. Okay. And... Um then turning to one of the more controversial subjects in recent years, mm -hmm. do you have a preference between growth and value? Yeah, it's so it's so funny that we're getting that this question um, because for a decade nobody asked about value, right? It was you want no growth for growth, the Fang stocks, low rates, low inflation, and all of that stuff dominated 
in the in the in the investment in the investment community in the investment conversation. Um, we have more value in our portfolio now than we ever have before. Now we're not going to be dominated by the value kind of by the value moves versus growth. However, we do have a dedicated allocation to large cap value, and we have a dedicated allocation to a multi cap value manager called Value Advantage, okay? So even though we've seen a 9% outperformance so far this year, that value has outperformed growth, there's still a 20, as you as you have pointed out in the past, there's still a 20% discount from these levels. So there still is a valuation component. The other thing I'd say, David, is what really got picked on and what really did well in a very low interest rate environment or zero interest rate environment are profitless tech. Okay, we are distinguishing that from the from the really good business model disrupting companies, right? That have good earnings and a good outlook. So I I, I think we have to distinguish, especially within growth, of the business models that make sense versus the ones that don't make as much sense. If the Federal Reserve and other central banks around the world are are, are raising interest rates, and then and then finally, just a lot of this discussion is dominated by the U.S. Um, but when you allocate outside of the U.S. to places like Europe that are dominated by financials and industrials and materials, you're getting a little bit more of a value bias there as well. Okay, so it's not just inside of the U.S. that you want to make that decision, but as part of your portfolio construction and how you're allocating globally, you're also kind of choosing uh, a value in, in different parts of the world, which make a lot of sense to us from a diversification standpoint. Well, seeing to this theme of, of what's going on in the rest of the world, uh, you mentioned that your portfolio is currently overweight U.S. equities. Mm -hmm. um, but could you elaborate a little bit on your U.S. versus international view? And do you think that this balance is going to change at any time soon? So um, global diversification was working splendidly earlier this year. And we made a lot of allocations outside of the U.S. to do that. I think what puts that on hold and the reason why we're focused on the U.S. right now is 100 percent driven by the Russia-Ukraine crisis, the increase in commodities and the pressure that that puts on specifically the European consumer. Now, with that being said, there's something that your team has pointed out that I think makes a lot of sense. If this cycle, OK, is characterized by higher interest rates, higher growth, okay, and higher inflation. Guess what? That looks like the polar opposite of the of the post GFC cycle that was characterized by zero interest rate policy in Europe, negative interest rate policy, very low inflation, and the and the flattest growth cycle that we saw in post war history. That was the last cycle. So if we're in this cycle, the European Central Bank is actually talking about they're already tapering asset purchases. We expect them to, um, at some point this year, actually have balance sheet runoff similar to the Fed. And the dream scenario for us would be that we're able to get to a point where uh, rates come out of negative interest rate territory. That all sets up very, very well for the European story, David. That's just not today's trade. Today's trade, we have to have more confidence because of the stalemate that's happening in Europe. We have to have more confidence in the North America story, the US story, the Canada story. But that that's going to be the most important decision that we make all year is if and when to get back into those global markets, 
not only emerging markets, but also the European markets. And, and, and the way things are headed, you know, they, they have record inflation, David, in Europe right now. And they have one mandate. In the US, we have a dual mandate, full employment and price stability. Their one mandate in Europe is 2% inflation. And they are missing that by a mile. They have record high inflation. So I, I, I think we can get to a point where Europe really starts, the cyclical story in Europe starts to take hold, you know, as long as this, as this war, you know, doesn't escalate, escalate from here. Okay, so so let's turn to the uh, the sort of forty percent in your sixty forty benchmark here, uh, the fixed yeah. income side. How have you been managing your fixed income exposure? Yeah, so we currently have about a ten percent underweight to fixed income. So in other words, uh, we have about thirty percent of our fund in fixed income, and that's pretty equally split, David, uh, between core bonds. Or, or global government bonds, that's about 15% of our portfolio. Even though we're underweight duration, right? There still is in a world of a lot of uncertainty, a need for ballast to come from core bonds. It's not the only way that we're protecting, but there still is a home for core bonds in our portfolio or government bonds in our portfolio. So that's 15%. Uh, we have about almost a year short uh, duration versus our index. So we are of the view that rates stay rates stay elevated from here. But again, at, at a 2.6% 10-year treasury, that looks a lot better than where we came into the year. So there is a home. And again, it's not just the US rates that are moving higher. You know, German government bond rates are are, are have blown through, you know, negative rates and are, and are now into 70 basis points or so. The other half of our fixed income is in credit. And I think this is really important. And this ties into one of the questions you asked earlier about recession. When you are long credit, and in our case, we're long high yield or below investment grade credit, you are 100% saying that there is not going to be a recession in the next 12 months. So we have about 15% of our fund in credit split between shorter term high yield that doesn't have as much duration, uh, as well as a sleeve that we call crossover credit, which are names that we think can get upgraded from below investment grade into investment grade. So all that being said, this is not an environment where you want to have a um, you know, benchmark weighting in fixed income. So we have about a 10% underweight in fixed income. And then the 30% is split equally between stuff that are going to protect us in that left tail recessionary risk, okay, because you can't assign a zero probability in any event. But the other side of it is something that we feel really comfortable with, which is just getting additional yield and carry in the portfolio through different forms of, of high yield credit. Okay. Um, well, so we're, we're sort of coming to the end of this here, but the, the last few months have been I've seen particularly volatile and uncertain markets. Is there a central theme or strategy that you're, you've been employing in navigating asset allocation during this period? Yeah, and I think I sum, I would sum it up by just saying portfolio durability. That's the theme. So what do I mean by that? I mean, this is not an environment where you really want to put your flag in the ground <laughs> with a dramatic overweight or underweight to risk assets. Okay, what we've seen in the first quarter alone with some of the whipsaws that we've seen in markets is that just is not the right strategy. So what we're trying to do as portfolio managers and asset allocators is really buy time to get us through this volatile period, to get us to the point, David, where we can speak more intelligently about whether inflation is able to be 
uh, taken down by the Fed or not, because I could say that we believe inflation is going to be 4% at the end of the year, but I can't convince you and you're not going to convince me of that today because all we have is the last CPI print at 7.9%. But we want to have the portfolio in a position where it could really ride through and be resilient and not be whipsawed by the, by, by, by the volatility. And that's a lot of what we did in the portfolio around taking our risk down, focusing on the U.S., focusing on quality, and then getting some credit in the fixed income uh, part of the portfolio. So that's what we've been talking to clients about over the last few few weeks. And, and, and finally, do you have any uh, sort of words of wisdom in terms of advice for the average investor in this environment? So um, multi-asset portfolios and asset allocation and diversification, that's, that's, those are all designed to remove the emotion from investing. If you watch TV, David, the answer that they would make you that they would make you guess is should I be in cash or should I be in Bitcoin, <laughs> right? And that's that is not what reality is. There are so many ways, and I call it the sixty forty life vest, right? You shouldn't have to just jump into the deep end of the pool or get out of the pool. You know, you should have a a way to stay in the market without being whipsawed by emotions. And I think that would be my advice. Also, you know, and and we're guilty of this as well. Professional investors are guilty of it. Having an appropriate time horizon when it comes to your goals and objectives, because if you had the first quarter as your time horizon in a 60-40 portfolio, guess what? You just lost on both sides, right? So have a longer time horizon than what um, kind of the noise is telling you out there. Uh, and that's, I think, what multi-asset investing can do for the average investor is just keep them invested. Right and keep them away from themselves. Keep them away from their own own emotions. You've talked a lot about that, and and we would certainly agree with that. Well, that sounds like exceptionally good advice. Um, thank you <laughs> for joining us, Phil, uh, and thank you all for listening. Thank you, Dave. Thanks for having me as a guest, and good luck this year. Please tune in to our next episode, where I'll be joined by Mike Kelly, head of America's real estate at J.P. Morgan Asset Management, for a discussion on the housing market and commercial real estate as we look beyond the pandemic. Until then, I invite you to read or listen to my Notes in the Week Ahead podcast, where every Monday I share commentary on the latest in the markets and the economy to help stay informed for the week ahead. For even more timely insights, you can also follow and subscribe to my content on LinkedIn. This content is intended for information only based on assumptions and current market conditions and are subject to change. No warranty of accuracy is given. This content does not contain sufficient information to support investment decisions. It is not to be construed as research, legal, regulatory, tax, accounting, or investment advice. Investments involve risks. Investors should seek professional advice or make an independent evaluation before investing. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate, including loss of capital. Past performance and yield are not indicative of current or future results. Forecasts and estimates may or may not come to pass. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide.